Greetings, future fossils. It's Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. I'm going to pick things up a little bit this summer and try and catch up on my enormous backlog of recorded episodes by releasing them at 1.5 or 2x speed, meaning six to eight episodes of this show every month, which is (laughs) an insane workflow. But that just means more for you. And also I can get out all these awesome conversations at a faster clip, which is better for the guests, obviously. That program starts this week with a very vulnerable and soulful conversation with an old and revered acquaintance of mine, Terry Patton, whose new book, A New Republic of the Heart, An Ethos for Revolutionaries, brings to bear his lifetime of experience in both the spiritual as well as political arenas to offer a vital and very timely message, speaking of Kairos and timing, about how to navigate the wicked problems and difficult emotional realities of living through an age where the stakes are as high and the questions as big as they are in ours. But before we get started, just a quick thank you to this week's new Patreon supporters. Andrew Perrine hugely up-edited his pledge this week. Thanks, Andrew. Jason Naylor and Emily Viator both joined the roster of supporters at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield this week. I just read a total bummer article on Slate about how my generation is the brokest generation alive and will probably never recover from that. So obviously crowdfunding, community supported radio, applying the new paradigm of wealth creation rather than wealth extraction as much as we possibly can to this thing as it falls apart, building the new thing from inside the burning old thing. Yes, thank you to everybody who has been supporting this show on Patreon or rating it on iTunes, which, by the way, is the absolute best way for me to convince badass rock star guests to be on the show is by showing them the numbers. So thank you for helping me get this into the ears and minds of everyone who will appreciate it. Another quick little update before we begin... I have been uploading the archives of Future Fossils to my YouTube page. So if it is your preference to listen to this on video, for whatever reason, you can head over to uh, YouTube or the decentralized blockchain-based version that feeds into Steemit, which is DTube, and find me there. Amazing conversations coming up on this show in the next couple weeks. Also, if you are in or around Santa Fe, New Mexico, this June 7th and 8th, Future Fossils is a media partner with the Santa Fe Institute in their inaugural Interplanetary Festival, a free public event co-produced with Meow Wolf, in which I will be playing music, participating in some panels, and recording episodes of this show with legendary space scientists and science fiction authors and we'll be rolling out those episodes 
over the months to come. But if you can make it out to Santa Fe for June 7th and 8th, that will be awesome. And I will see you there. I will be hanging out with episode 65's guest, John David Ebert, who lives in Santa Fe. So come join us and contribute to the conversation about how to sustainably scale human civilization. Wee! Yeah, so anyway, but first we have to figure out what to do about waking up in the middle of this mess we're in. And that is why I'm so delighted that I get to share this heartfelt conversation with you today. Everybody, welcome Terry Patton to the archives. Terry, it's wonderful to have you on Future Fossils. Well, thank you, Michael. I'm happy to be here with you. I think uh, I'd like to situate this conversation about your new book by letting people listening know that I was introduced to you through the Integral Life Practice Seminar in 2005. Like That was when we actually met in person. And... I had already been listening to you, uh, you know, podcast interviews with you and so forth for a while. But to get to sit with you and to learn from you about shadow work in person was a profound and epical shift for me in my life and has really been sort of one of the defining moments that has shaped the last 13 years. So I'm, I'm honored that you're here and I'm, I'm glad that you're continuing to write and and to write about what I feel is is such an important turning point for our species as a whole right now. So um, why don't we start by introducing people, as you were just doing with me before the call, introducing people to the sort of broad brush image of of what this work is about and and why you. I think it'll be evident why it's so important. Well. My new book, A New Republic of the Heart, is really an attempt to integrate the implications in the lives of people today of integral, all the brilliant insights of integral theory, which bring together all the different aspects of the inner work and the outer world in a much more integrated understanding. But integral theory tries to take a, a bird's eye view on things, and yet we live things right here on the ground. And we are facing an awful lot of disorienting dilemmas right now, and in fact, uh, a civilizational challenge that nobody has adequate answers to. And so that, to me, I, I remember getting goosebumps as I took in the enormous historical profundity of all of the wisdom traditions of all human cultures arriving at a place where they became, were coming into conversation with each other and there was a synthesis and, a, and, and it was informed by science and critical thinking right at the same time that we were also encountering existential challenges to our ability to continue on into the future. The fact that all that's happening at the same time and that we're here for that, well, that enters something else in, you know, it's not just a matter of getting up on the bird bird's eye view and understanding everything. It's, it's like, what's important right now? What's really happening right now? And what is that about? And what is, 
what does that mean for me personally? But what does that translate into for us together? And and where does that take us together? So. You know, the, the subtitle of this book is An Ethos for Revolutionaries. And, and, and you know, I think it's probably wise for us to ground this conversation of people who who aren't familiar with you and your lifetime of work in a bit of background about your your time in in the space of activism and and the time that you've spent in an ashram and really how your whole life is this gesture of integration between the outer work of activism and social justice and the inner work of spiritual transformation which is you know such a, a key piece of this yeah you know i i've i've had a it's funny <laughs> i'm getting old now i guess so uh, <laughs> i guess i've got a story now <laughs> but I, I when i was six my folks moved to this place uh, called the york center community co-op in uh just uh, west of Chicago, where a group of uh, people in the Church of the Brethren, one of the peace churches, uh, invited people of other races and religions to live together with them as a witness for peace and brotherhood. So I ended up growing up during the Vietnam War years as a kid who was just kind of intellectually curious and read the news and wanted to talk about what was happening with all these adults, my friends, parents, and my parents' friends around who were Japanese who'd been interned and pacifists who wouldn't fight in the war and just politically active people, uh, leaders of the civil rights movement, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I ended up kind of getting mentored to be a revolutionary, mentored to be a, an activist. And when I was in college, leading demonstrations and being very deeply involved in all that stuff in the early 70s, I realized that I needed to actually be able to live it an entirely superior principle. So I, uh, I gravitated to the human potential movement. And from that, I found my way to the ashram of my, of my teacher. And I spent the first half of my adult life in intensive spiritual practice. So I've kind of gone from the, you know, the outer work to the inner work. And now in a way I'm coming back. So my, my sense is that an integration is necessary. We're, we're all faced with the fact that our current way of life is going to have to go through major changes, partly because of technological and uh, economic transitions that are going to make our, our current patterns of living uh, no longer necessary in many ways, because we'll have a lot of new possibilities and wealth, but also because of extreme weather events and disasters and, you know, the unsustainability of our way of life. And so we're living in this crazy moment, kind of poised between utopia and dystopia. And in this moment, it's very important that from the from a big picture, it's, it's important that the best in human beings come forward in order to, in order that we, that us future fossils not become fossils <laughs> too fast here. Uh, and 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 that and that those who might find our fossils might show up in just uh, a few hundred or so years, rather than in millions. You know, so that we don't have to re-evolve from the raccoons or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, uh, 
I'm also, it, it's kind of weird, but I, on the one hand, I talk about it in terms of the higher potentials. Like, we live in a, we're the luckiest people who've ever lived. I mean, look at the information, the safety, the quality of mobility across the planet. We have so, so many advantages. And yet we're also facing these kind of horrific, you know, end of the world stuff. I mean, every time you go to the multiplex, it's all save the world, destroy the world. Everything is hyped up to a, an apocalyptic level in our psyches and in and in our actual situation. And finding a way to deal with that that doesn't just add to the madness, but drops us down into contact with ourselves and reality and each other um, is absolutely essential. And that maybe speaks a little bit to some of the contemplations that have drawn me into the work that's produced a new republic of the heart. You talk about there being a need for a balance that, you know, if we if we were to emphasize only the social action, then we're courting burnout. I mean, we're almost guaranteeing ourselves burnout because there's this profound like despair that comes with trying to live long enough to see the goal, like to, to actually to see the fruit of a, a life of service, but then to take it the other way and to emphasize only on only the inner work and the spiritual development, you know, you argue that that's a sort of equally futile. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you see uh, in, in this book, which I haven't read and is unfortunately, but I'm curious in the book, how, how do you, reconcile those two like how do you point to strategies for people seeking a balance between the two well you know i don't i don't think that there is a, a balance that's possible exactly but i just think that each in its own way is a necessity uh, when i go down to the depths of what you know what really are my deepest sense of calling and motivation I could talk about it in terms of being all that I can be, fulfilling my potential, actualizing and, and, and living my soul's truth and purpose. Or I could talk about it in terms of being of benefit and making a difference, uh, helping others, being love and, you know, in a way that's effective. And so one of them is more directed outward at others. One of them is more about self but actually i don't think that you can fully actualize your own purpose and potential without making a contribution to others you know the 10th ox herding picture is all about returning to the marketplace with helping hands uh whereas uh, also if we try to make a difference and be effective in blessing others, our own stuff is going to keep getting in the way. And in a way we have to, you know, we face problems that can't be solved with the kind of consciousness that created them, as is often said. So our own transformation becomes an inevitable part of being truly effective, especially because we're facing such profound civilizational challenges it's really going to take 
a different level of wisdom and commitment and inspiration and relationship and friendship. Uh, so I think that a deep understanding of what we're confronting integrates our impulses and draws us to inner work and outer work as both being essential. And then it's kind of a matter of understanding where you can make a difference and understanding what's what you're not just where you can make a difference. Everybody's path is different. In certain moments of your path, you're going to be more focused on the inner and others on the outer. It's not like there's some cookie cutter ideal that everybody's supposed to conform to. It's all an adventure. But it's not an adventure that can ignore uh, any aspect of this inner and outer reality. Mm. So on that note, I was just having a conversation in the Future Fossils Facebook group today. A very, it's ongoing, actually. It's, it's a kind of a disturbing conversation with someone I don't know who found a video I'd posted explaining the frailty of white men in America right now, explaining <laughs> the, it was a video by a woman to other women and, and to other mar historically marginalized underclasses. I saw it as, as a, a, a stroke of compassion, saying, have a little sympathy for for these people who believed that they were stepping into a particular world and a particular sort of easy affluence, and now they're down at the at the bottom of the power inequality with the rest of us. And yet, to my sort of surprise and amazement, I got this uh, this random white guy in the group popped in and said it was a bunch of it was violent propaganda that it was it was an attack on people and there's something about turning into that puzzle of trying to like cross the bridge and understand where this guy is coming from and why he felt that this particular why he felt this video was so offensive to him because suddenly the group uh was divided and it the response was, oh, look, at, you know, you're an, you're a perfect example of the frailty that they're talking about. And suddenly I felt my role as moderator was like trying to hold this conversation together between people that have no respect for one another or are not even interested in trying to see eye to eye. And I, I, I feel like you you probably have something very wise to say <laughs> about the importance of that kind of a bridging conversation, not necessarily about that particular topic, but about learning to hear the wound in another person mm. in this and like turning into the unpleasantness of not confronting other people with whom we sort of superficially disagree, but seeking these deep commonalities so that we can play together on, on what Douglas Rushkoff calls team human. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Well, you, there, there's a real limit to what we can do in Facebook forums and so forth, because <laughs> you, we'd need to identify some shared agreements out of which we could have a deeper type of conversation than comment, you know, threads and so forth tend, tend to have. I'm really interested in Ask in you know we're facing questions nobody has adequate answers to, so let's sit in those questions together 
I think those questions are functioning for us a little like a Japanese koan, an impossible question. You know, like what is the sound of of one hand clapping or show me your original face, the one you had before your parents were born. And that kind of a question stops the mind and because it stops the mind, it wakes you up to what is beyond the mind and it can to some degree change your whole way of seeing and your whole way of being. And we're facing such profound questions as a species right now that they are that kind of a question. Uh, and to sit in a question with another person is an intimate experience. It's like, especially if it's an important question, a question that really is you know, needs needs to be answered, one that we feel some urgency about. And if there's anything we should feel urgency about, I mean, look, it's it's a complete mind fuck to take to heart the implications. I mean, the facts of climate science, the facts of our civilizational predicament, all that stuff. What does that mean? I mean, it, its implications are that things will be happening in your lifetime that will have enormous, enormous consequences to the future of life on the planet for many, many species, including human beings, and that, you know, children, grandchildren, however out, far out we want to look at it, that, that their chance to have a life anything like the one that, that we've known up until now may hang in the balance. So that's like incredibly heavy, incredibly morally significant. And to look away from it is to kind of you know, it's 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 a it's a moral cop out to look away from all that, and and yet we don't quite know how to be in the pressure of all of that in, in a way that doesn't shut us down, and yet if things are this, I often say things are far too serious for us to lose our sense of humor. I like that. And, and, That's and, wonderful. Yeah. And, because if if this is such an important time, we'd better be at our best. And we're only going to be at our best if we're loose and alive and we have a sense of humor and some lightheartedness. And it's out of that that we bring the best of ourselves. And yet, how do you bring lightheartedness to something that's so consequential? These are like that when, when we talk about global warming, everybody talks about it in terms of CO2 and parts per million and and converting from this kind of power plant to that and so forth. And it's all public policy as if it's all abstract. And yet everybody on the planet is actually up against this. Like somehow we, we consented to be born in at this time, something in our souls is, you know, a yes to being here. This is our lives. And there's something about this that is uniquely beautiful in its own different way, even though it has, aspects of it that seem like such a an impossible conundrum and i think discovering a way of being with that draws us into a different way of being with ourselves and with each other and out of that we might begin to see the patterns out of which something that would actually be healthy enough to to make a difference can arise 
because we can't answer these. This koan is not going to be answered by individuals. It's going to have to be answered by collectives. So it's not personal. I, I, I've always taught practice. I think that cultivating our, our best, understanding life as a school, growing regarding every moment of life as a part of that school, all that's really important. But it's not a solo sport, especially now. And for our relationships with each other to become something amazingly spiritually frag- fragrant that would make a difference, that would be, that would be cool. Mm. Yeah, that that idea that the next Buddha is the Sangha, that that for a networked age, you know, an age where it seems like our our insecurity is actually, in some sense, due to the fact that we are so connected economically, culturally. I'm reading Timothy Morton's Hyper Objects, where he talks about global warming as this sort of hyper-dimensional thing that we're all inside of that's affecting us all together. And so there's a sort of, a, a, in a sense, like a global conspiracy that we're all participating in to the extent that we are breathing together as crowdsourced global warming contributors or something. And so, yeah, so how do you understand the role of the hero in this space? Like, is there... Is there room for individuals to step forward in a heroic way or is that a thing of the past or, or how does it fit into this community emphasis? Well, I actually think that what this is about is, is it, it's like a, we've all been given that call that is what commences. You know, the very, very first moment of the hero's journey is the, the hero is given a call. And we've all been given a call because we've been put in this impossible situation. Here it is. We're becoming aware that we already are in this ridiculous situation. And the next step is that the hero refuses the call. <laughs> that's, that's how it begins. So we're right on schedule. We've all been refusing the call. <laughs> we're doing beautifully. <laughs> and, of course... Then we meet the mentor. You know, you have to basically you have to have contact with another human being who's being real enough that you're drawn into a more authentic relationship to all of that. So all of us who are serious practitioners, particularly those of us like me, who, you know, I've been around almost 70 years, so I've got almost 50 years of practice. And I've got a uh, some capacity to be with this. I hope that I can have a serious conversation that has that kind of catalytic effect. That's what my book was written to accomplish. And I think it it does bring together a, a unique synthesis of uh, of the well of spiritual wisdom and you know. But as it's expressed in practice, it's. It, a lot of our philosophy is is less useful than it could be because it hinges on talking about it, kind of reifying the world, our understandings, our concepts. And it's the lived experience of being with each moment, each new moment, this moment, this next moment, the now that's gone, the moment you cognize it, you know, all you can do is open to the next new now, the being with 
this amazing living process that's always disappearing as soon as we you know as soon as we show up for it what we showed up for is behind us you know it's this living endless current of of livingness and of life is this is our uh, so it's it's a verb you see it's not it's not a noun and so the, the synthesis is a synthesis of ways of being and doing and ways of relating and, and we're all in relationship and we've all been given a koan but we can't answer it except together and we barely know how to talk with each other most of our conversations are contests for dominance do we do we actually drop into questions together and share an inquiry i think we're being initiated this call is requiring us to discover new levels of our own development in you know integral theory understands how we've evolved in ways that identify different structures that proceed in stages and we're in a moment where another stage of our evolution as individuals and as a as a human collective is pretty much necessitated and i think it's exciting to engage that consciously for us to choose and embrace what's being thrust upon us for us to recognize it not as some awful terrible bad predicament but relate to it as the gift of this remarkable mysterious existence showing up for us in our lives and things must be perfectly on schedule in some bizarrely intense way <laughs> so uh, how um as someone who has spent the last several years trying to make sense of things in a similar way as like you know to to find my gratitude for being born and uh, what is it? The, the Chinese curse. May may you live in unusual times. Uh, interesting. Interesting times. Yeah. There's this other part of it, which is, I feel like, a, a, a peril almost, that we become convinced of our importance. That we see that we are, in a weird way, in this position of extraordinary influence. And, you know, then then it, you know, you end up in these conversations like I did today where... I feel like I have to temper my desire to, like you said, there are power drives expressed in our communication with each other. And I think so often is the case in communities of practice, whether it's uh, inner work or, or outer work, that these noble impulses end up sort of reframing or, I mean, uh, or like perpetuating these dominance things it was like, oh, I'm more whole than you. You know, let me teach you how to be more whole. So how do we, how do we approach this with the right humility? I guess is what I'm asking. You know, how do we, how do we step into this in a way where we can reach across the aisle to someone with whom we maybe even violently disagree and listen to them with an open heart and and humility and really hear what they have to say and yeah i don't know there, there's not a technique of course it, it's really just a matter of showing up more 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 genuinely 
we tend not to be conscious of all kinds of motives that are uh, operating in us and that cause us very often to pretty pretty much in an automatic fashion to just move forward into life in, in habitual patterns that don't really make room for this kind of deeper discourse. So you find your way into that humility by realizing that it's real, that the, it's not just a pose of humility that you, oh, let me learn to practice it. It's a matter of catching sight of yourself in the mirror and realizing that anything other than humility is, isn't going to work, that, it's, that it's, it's, it's a false relationship to our, our situation, that it's uh, a way of being inauthentic, of, of being uh, poorly functionally fitted to the reality of our, of our situation. So I think that the, you also then begin to realize that the way you talk and the way you listen are, are kind of like, if I really listen to you and let you in, you're going to feel more inclined to really listen and let me in. In fact, having listened to you and really let you in, if I speak from the way you have affected me, I will have modeled you taking me in and then speaking from how I've affected you. And that's the nature of, of, a, of a conversation that accomplishes two things. One is that it brings us closer together, which is the only way that we together are going to be able to respond to any impossible question. And the other is that it has us inquiring into questions that we need new wisdom, new insight, new capacity to respond to. So all of that is, in, in other words, it's only by recognizing that the, the humility I'm talking about is our real situation. It's just like you, you wake up from being full of it, you know, to, to getting real. It, it's, it's that simple. Something you said earlier about the grain of social media and like Facebook in particular being sort of cut against that kind of interaction raises an, uh, another question for me, which is how given the scale of these problems and given the scale of the collaboration required for us to adequately even begin to explore these paradoxes that they raise in a meaningful way, is it even possible for us to have this kind of listening exchange online? Is it, I mean, you know, David Byrne said that the, he, he felt that the function of the internet, if we were just to look at it, what it actually does is, is to make human interaction unnecessary. Is there a way for us to listen to each other on social media or is it really a lost cause and it sort of falls upon us to go out into the world and and seek out these potentially difficult encounters face to face well i think that there's a there's an art to every kind of human exchange and i don't think that it is inherently impossible for something beautiful and good and true and deep and amazing to happen on Facebook. I think it can. I'm sure it has been happening a lot. 
but there is something about the volume of relational exchanges that you can have online that causes you to invest a lot less in each one and therefore to kind of skim on the surface. And that's what tends to happen. And so those tend to be not very nutritious uh, fare. And we, we tend to become drained by our participation in it. It's not a place where we have as much meaningful contact with other people. But if you're skillful with it, you might be able to create something where something deeper can happen. And there have been amazing deep contacts between people just through exchanges of letters. But you've got to invest some time and some depth in the writing process. And you have to get something out of that for yourself as you go. And that that kind of a process is, you know, partly we, we think very quickly about how can I scale this? Because we obviously have problems on an enormous scale. But it may be that we ought to be asking ourselves, how can I get this right? Because it may be that we, that things will naturally scale once they actually accomplish something profoundly different. So our ways of being with ourselves and each other, like just, you know, there's a kind of curiosity and openness and willingness to show up for what we otherwise might pull away from. I think particularly a serious conversation about our civilizational jam. I mean, everybody knows it. Everybody acts like they know it. But we don't actually talk about it very much, given what a big elephant it is that's in our living room. Our level of engagement with it is, you know, we're, we're, we live in a culture that's still in deep, deep denial. That people will say 97% of scientists agree that global warming is human caused and that this is serious and we're going to have to act quickly in order to avert more than a two degree rise and so forth and so on. It, it, that's talked about all the time on, on the cable news and it's denied almost equally on the cable news but the implications of it I mean, you 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 aren't really talking about it if you if your voice isn't breaking with emotion mm-hmm. you know if you're not you know oh my god i have i have a son who's only i don't know seven or eight years younger than you and what 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 what's your old age going to be like? What what are what is life going to be like for his kids and grandkids? And 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 how can we wake up enough in the midst? We're kind of in this mass uh, consensus trance that doesn't allow us to kind of break into real effectiveness. It's it's a time that calls for revolutionary uh, engagement, and yet. So it doesn't just call for revolutionary engagement. This accelerating crisis of fragmentation inherently, structurally stimulates the agency of wholeness and health and coherence and integrity also. And that's what's coming forward. That aspect of the heart that says, well, wait a second. I want to be, I want to be the health of this human system reasserting itself in the midst of this quality of breakdown don't you feel that way too? And how is it for you? And how can it be for us? Now we're beginning to have the conversation. It's out of that, that that inner work that's integrated with the outer work, 
and that is not just individualized. Because, I mean, the heroism is going to have to be collective. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh said the next Buddha may very well be a Sangha. We're not going to make this transition to a sustainable human presence on the planet through a lot of individuals being so good. It's going to have to be that we come into new patterns in our ways of being with each other. And and it's going to mean that many of us find our way to to love effectively in a way that has more force than anger. We're going to have to find our way to contact with reality that brings forth a, a level of passion and clarity and intelligence that commands a kind of authority and, and clarity and, and response. I think that that doesn't arise out of out of any formula. How does this strike you? How, how is this that I'm saying affecting you now? It's it's real, you know. I I, I feel like a the formula lessness of it is vivid and tangible and keeps me up at night. Mm. You know, uh, it's it's a you know, I think a lot about jazz and improvisation. And I, I you know, something in that I've been turning over for years that there's a there's a sense in which the levity that you you mentioned and the curiosity and the attentiveness to a, like an unfolding freshness of it. I've puzzled this in my own improvisational experiments, you know, coming to get, bringing people together in groups to jam or, or to make art. But what I've noticed in those spaces is that there is inevitably, it's, it doesn't make for a good uh, stage show usually <laughs> because there's inevitably a moment uh, where it goes almost terrifyingly dark where it's it's incoherent and dissonant and something about it like learning learning to love the dissonance of it seems really key to this and you know in in the emails we exchanged before this call you you mentioned the importance of following your heartbreak mm-hmm. and of developing an intelligent relationship to anger and it's these unpleasant things. It's not just the unpleasant people and the unpleasant conversations, but sort of this this sense that while there may be no particular strategy moment to moment, that maybe there is. Maybe there is this, in, in a sense, there is like a, you know, if you're about to roll your car, you actually have to turn into the, the swerve to keep the car from rolling. And in a similar way, it's like, like you said a, a moment ago, it's like if we don't sit with these things in whichever way they manifest, then we, we're never on the path, uh, at least consciously. Well, yeah, there are a lot of different ways of talking about it. I really appreciate you. I can feel you being real in the midst of this and wandering through the territory 
both in a way that's vulnerable, willing to disclose your process, and also kind of cycling through some of the points that you wanted to bring forward and that 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 matter to you, that you felt and that you resonated with. There's a lot. I think that's what. There. Yeah, I, I I think I think that's what's most alive that I feel like I can relate to, and. You know, so what that what I felt most was your your vulnerability, and therefore your interest in paying attention to the difficult states that I was offering as a a valid piece of this. One one of the things I discovered recently is that the word bliss is deeply related to the etymologically to uh, a word for wound, blesser in French. And uh, and so when Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss, it may be that what he meant by that was more like what I recommend, which is to follow your heartbreak and your genius, both. And I think bliss and genius have a relationship with each other, with your friends, I say. And, and this is my way of responding to somebody you know, when I when I point out that we all have to be part of the solution that that's kind of an advocacy for activism well the activism that we well what should I do how what cause should I be active on behalf of well I, I think it's most val- valuable if you discover your own life's purposes and you discover how that can relate to the fragmentation and suffering in the world and make and make a positive difference. And you do that from a place of authentic care. So that's why follow your heartbreak makes sense. But you also have to bring to bear your own capacity, what you are uniquely fitted to do, your soul's qualities your or your genius is absolutely got to be engaged or you're not going to stay engaged in whatever this is. It's going to be some little thing you do to because you think that a part of your life ought to include it. But it's going to be a little bit of at, at a distance from, from the very center of your being. The other thing, though, that's necessary is we're going to have to find a way to integrate our inner work and our outer work and our social lives. We're going to have to find a way to in a way, bring a celebratory quality to various forms of of activism. I mean, we use the word activism to direct ourselves at, you know, working outward rather than inward. But the word activism tends to connote some sort of opposition or bitterness or there's a problem. Kind of, there's a negativity very often associated with the word. And that's not an appropriate piece of all this. We don't want to engage that kind of negativity, in fact. I think that we can open up our sense of what that of, of what we might really want to be including in terms of outer service, that, that part of it is participation in the political system. And I think that far too few people understand that living in the United States of America, where I live and where you live, I think we have a profound moral responsibility not only to vote, but to participate in the electoral system. And I think that we're in a pretty unique moment, although what I think is necessary is profound whole system change, revolutionary change, a stage transition in human culture, which is revolutionary by its nature. 
I think that what we need right now is to prevent cultural regression, which is tending to be happening. And the loss of our ability to locate accurate reality, to be reality bound in this post-truth era is the political issue of our time. So we're going to have to join together. Although I'm, I think spirituality is at the center of things. There are all kinds of atheists and science, you know, scientistic atheists who I profoundly disagree with about a lot of fundamental values who are my total allies right now. We, we all recognize that the practice of the scientific method, the practice of professional journalism, these are crucial to having a society that could even begin to work. We are facing such problems that our best intelligence and wisdom has to guide our collective decision-making. And we are only going to be able to reestablish that if we stop tearing down our methods for creating consensual truth, a consensus reality. And those are under fire with the Almost every you probably know dozens of people who are neck deep in conspiracy theory thinking. Now, I, I admit there are some, you know, it's been proven pretty much that various people, including some elements of the FBI, had a hand in the assassination of Martin Luther King. That was a conspiracy. There are other that it's not that there aren't conspiracies, but there's gets to be a habit of mind. And, you know, some of the people I love most in the world are believing in luciferian child molestation and even aspects of pizzagate you know they're going down the tubes into into craziness and this uh, as soon as we begin to realize that the official line is not perfectly trustable we can begin to question it and and that's happening now culturally and we have a lot of people who realize that you can make a lot of money essentially like like Alex Jones, by putting forth inflammatory but sticky ideas. And so we've got people selling delusion, reestablishing some measure of consensual truth as a culture. is. If we can't do that, we're all sunk. So that's the political issue of the day. And of course, yes, the Democratic candidates have to beat Republican candidates because right now the Republican Party has been colonized by Trump and so forth. Yes, yes, that's a big piece of it. And really engaging there is important. And there's some heroism in that. But finding a way to turn that from being a kind of duty, a, a, a dread duty that's kind of dulling and, 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 and burdensome into something that we can bring ourselves to with passion so that we're not just engaging our heartbreak, but we're bringing our genius to it and we're doing it with friends and we're actually having a good time. Well, we haven't figured out how to do that, not not in the best of ways. Everything we do is turning itself into startup culture. Everybody's running faster and faster and burning themselves out, trying to catch the golden ring in some way. And, and you know, life's what's happening while we're busy making our plans. And, and so the, this, this re-embrace of our humanity in the form of our engagement is upon us. So I'm kind of musing on all of that in, in response to you you keying on these qualities. Well, you know, anger, if it's healthy, is the energy to change what needs to be changed. That's a way of thinking of it positively. Obviously, anger can become incredibly destructive and toxic, too. 
Well, we're in a moment in which, as wisdom reclaims its dominion in our world, really, the heart reclaims the human world, love is going to have to find a voice that's even more powerful and authoritative than the voice of righteous indignation and anger. Love is going to have to reassert its natural authority. And so the fact of it all is when we, when we face aspects of our reality, we get scared and we, we, we get very vulnerable. And out of that, maybe we begin to recognize that we're, we're in some questions that nobody has adequate answers to and that maybe we want to ex- explore being with each other in a way that might be able to yield both better questions and more wisdom and also more coherent and effective ways of of being love in action, making a difference in the world, making, you know, kicking ass and taking names. Oh man, that's I'm looking forward to transcribing that. That's full of worthy nuggets in there, Terry. I listening to all of it, this is something that you keyed into. It seems almost like it draws like we're getting closer to the attractor for this whole conversation in this issue of the the koan level ineffable complexity of these things and then also in the sort of tendency that we have to veer into these righteously indignant victim conspiracy narratives and i had a hunter motts on the show once upon a time and his kind of spiel is all about how knowledge has become so unmanageably large that we can't have experts anymore in the way that we had experts a hundred years ago and that there's a sense that the the things that we are attending to now the things that have become the realities of our daily lives the the topics of conversation are abstract in a way that they weren't the realities of the everyday life uh, to a person living in an age of print media or television were not this complicated we're not this abstract we were not talking about complex chaotic global systems involving every known culture and so you know in your recognition of the unity uh, of purpose or at least the the allyship Mm-hmm. Uh, that you feel with people like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, these these types that are on a crusade to bring back an evidence-based society. Right. I wonder what you think about uh, like Kevin Kelly's notion that with science, we're, we're raising more questions exponentially than we are answering questions. And therefore that the ultimate goal of science is actually to approach the unknowable ever more that it's not we're not trying to arrive at some sort of total understanding but that science and spirituality meet at the point where we realize that both of them are completely preoccupied with unfolding this infinite origami of the unknown and that maybe we never get reality back like maybe we never get a world in which everyone can agree on the answers to these questions but that there's some way to continue to move forward in a coordinated respect by agreeing that these are at least the right questions. Well, (laughs) you said a lot there. Uh, I like your recounting of Kevin Kelly's perspective on refining 
questions more and more. And I think getting some measures of agreement about some of the right questions, but the honest truth is there are a lot of different questions, all of which have a place. It's as if there's this enormously complex mandala in which every last bit of reality is related. Everything integrates with everything. I mean, there's only one reality. Obviously, it's all there. Our best understanding of it is always going to be uh, partial because it's a going to be a, a simplification of something more intricately complex. You know, I think the survival issues may just undercut us and our abilities to understand things are not so much the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking about science and spirituality, it's as if all of this is primarily existing in the noetic sphere. And, and clearly our, our knowledge about it is important, but a lot of this is going to assert itself in the physiosphere, very, very much underneath all of that. So it is actually behaviors and policies. It's things like, do we drill more oil or mine more coal? coal? What do we burn? How do we organize our economy? What do we do with this growth-addicted pattern that we're locked into? All of those kinds of issues are quite literal. And, you know, life wants to keep living. Evolution wants to keep evolving. Intelligence wants to keep understanding. The drivers of, uh, that motivate us have a wholeness to them. We're involved in a process in which this complexification, this dance of acceleration and complexification is is fragmenting our psyches, it's fragmenting our culture, it's fragmenting our families, it's fragmenting our very being. And yet in response to that crisis of fragmentation, the inherent wholeness of being is reasserting itself like an immune response. And that's Mm -hmm. what arises in our hearts where we want to make things better, we want to be of benefit, we want to restore integrity, you know, all those motives are very healthy. Wholeness wants to have its say. And that is more at the heart of this. I, I see uh, this revolution, you know, it's going on in every one of us. You, you are constantly being distracted. You live a big chunk of your life, as we all do, in a virtual world. And our attention's getting fragmented by a thousand different factors. And what it is that just is naturally attracted to wholeness, that is naturally attracted back into health and into integrity, that which wants to be the change that's obviously so necessary in our world. Those are going to be able to come alive like in your friendships. Like every friendship can become more genuinely deep and vulnerable and affectionate and, you know, dynamic and catalytic. Every conversation, every every organization, this one of the terms I use in the book is that an integral revolution is is upon us. And, and I, I call it integral because it's taking place in every heart and every relationship and every organization and every in every nation and every culture. And it's got to do with this crisis of fragmentation being countered by the inherent wholeness of being. And a lot of the detailed conversation that you'll see in this book, A New Republic of the Heart, is a deep unpacking of how we can arrive in the very work of evolving ourselves to that next stage. A stage transition is a revolutionary transition. 
And, you know, as people so frequently say, you know, we're, we're up against this imperative, evolve or die. But meanwhile, there's a lot of resistance in the human collective. And we're going to have to get off of our superiority and our games of our own unique specialness and become tender, loving particip participants. And whether it's a great hospice project or whether it's the process through which we turn this whole thing around, the heart is at the center of it. And uh, finding a way to bring the heart to the center of, of each moment. I think that's the right question. Hmm. I'm so glad you brought up hospice because I was, I just spent a week with my friend Todd Gass, who uh, he was an integral naked artist and I met him through that community and he's been involved with Richard Groves and the Anamkara project and hospice work. And there's something that you said about, you know, sort of a lot of this stuff, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. It's like very cerebral, but that ultimately a lot of, a lot of the discussion around this stuff ceases to matter in the, the urgent imminence of the life or deathness of this. And it's like that, that sense of, would we be having this conversation? I think you and I would be, but like on Facebook today, would I be having this conversation with this guy in this way, if one or the other of us were dying, would we even agree to this? Or being born, you know, for that matter, the midwifing thing, if you want to inject some radical hope in there, you know, that in these moments of urgent transition, oh, this, that feels like a really useful touchstone somehow, you know, that like, maybe we are so distracted for now, that it's easy to sort of forget that we're on this slow motion collision course with the plain facts of the human condition. I don't know. What is, I'm curious. You mentioned having a young son. You talk with him about this stuff, I'm sure. What comes up in your conversations with your own son about finding that celebration and well, he's 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 doing fine on the celebration side. He's not as, uh, you know, I think he's <laughs> he's very much his own man, and he's an artist uh, in his own right. He's a filmmaker and lives in Brooklyn. You know, it, it, it's it's interesting. I think he really appreciates and values what I'm doing, but he sometimes feels a little bit like he has to defend himself from getting sort of sucked into being a part of my world rather than the center of his own. And so he definitely reasserts that. His own creativity is pretty important to him. And I think that the overwhelming nature of the topics that I've been writing about are, uh, like so many people, he's a little bit afraid that this, in the enormity of this, of, of, of our collective challenges will kind of colonize and take over uh, all the other priorities that through which he finds expression to his own unique individuality. And so to some degree, he's, he certainly appreciates the love and care that motivate me. And he gets that there's accuracy to the arguments. And yet, his commitment to the enterprise I, I see it deepening and growing all the time. I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's a very cool and very deep guy. 
it, it probably expresses itself more in him organizing men's groups and engaging his own relationships with depth and 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 uh caring to have you know more authentic and powerful encounters with people being emotionally vulnerable stuff like that and he, but but you know he's gotten involved in political campaigns and created uh political ads and this and that you know so he's engaged he's also bringing energy to a new republic of the heart very directly because he he values it so he's he's doing some video work on the project but i think like all of us there's something threatening this this whole topic it's kind of like i i was talking to another guy uh, uh probably about my son's age in his late 20s or early 30s who was saying you know it's so funny I'll be going through my life and I'll be getting really excited and I'll be feeling really optimistic. And then I'll remember about global warming and then I'll realize I can't be happy anymore. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Come on. Boats are coming back in a big way. I, I mean, I'm, I'm pumped. You know, <laughs> if you're, if you're into seafaring, you know, floating cities and stuff like this is your time. <laughs> you know, I think that we have to think in terms that, there's a whole social theory, you know, that there are a lot of people who put down utopian thinking because, of course, it's not reality based. And then there are those who uh, argue that we have to think in utopian terms because we have a system that doesn't work. So we have to think about how it can be better. So thinking about how we can bring about something that's better is the the essence of a creative engagement. I, I, I've been thinking about that a little because one of the subcategories that my book has been placed in and on Amazon is utopian. Whoa. I've been I've been running neck and neck with Plato's Republic for the number one spot for the last couple of months, and uh, that that's had had me reflect. And I've I've seen that the sociology literature about utopianism is essentially that that argument. So I think the fact that we're going to die doesn't necessarily have to bum us out you know i mean the buddhism which is you know all about serenity and a fundamental loving kindness is you know it's founded in the recognition of the heavenly messengers of sickness old age and death and if we're dealing with collective you know every living thing that has ever been born has died and it might be that the whole living thing that is this beautiful blue planet has a lifespan too i mean it definitely does because in some number of hundreds of millions of years the sun will supernova and die so you know it'll it'll get bigger than where we are in the in the solar system so we we will get fried then and the earth won't last forever so if it if, if human civilization is to come to an end you know it isn't the flower is no less beautiful in its blooming just because it will inevitably eventually wilt. But there's something about really being there for everything that you love. And if everything that you love is at risk, I think our character is being called upon at a time that our attention is being fragmented. So, you know, we're in an age where hardly anybody actually reads a whole book anymore. Well, you know, maybe it's too late. Maybe I won't be able to get enough people to actually read this book and let it change their 
way of understanding. But I think I think that I've actually accomplished something significant. You know, the, the praise for the book is pretty high. You know, it's been called required reading for all humans over the age of 16. And... Well, shit. I'll add it to the stack. <laughs> well, it's never too late. You can always read it. I, I think I've accomplished something with that book that I I hope will draw you, everyone, you know, to read it. I think there's there's a real uh, potential for uh, a more coherent spirit to enable us to be effective in our efforts to be of to, to both realize our own, you know, actualize our own potentials and to be of benefit in a way that makes a difference in a time when so much is so clearly at stake. Mm. So Terry, normally I would wrap this up by inviting you to indulge a, a thought experiment about looking back on this conversation, about looking back on your life from the future and like how you hope that that, that present future conversation might go. But I feel like this whole episode has been about this. Yeah. You know, that it's, it's super clear where, you know, where your heart is and, you know, the impact that you hope that you make the, the trace fossil that you hope you leave in the world. So instead I I'm, I'm curious to turn it out and, and to, to invite you to, to say, well, who, who do you see out there? Who are the other, I mean, obviously you can't make an exhaustive list, but who are the evolutionary activists that, or the groups, I guess, right? Because the hero is a group now. You know, where do you, where do you draw inspiration? Where, where are you turned on and, and lit up and restored through your encounter with seeing these, these people doing what they're doing in the world? Well, I'm profoundly inspired. You know, Joanna Macy is uh, just a, a a national treasure. So she's she comes to mind immediately. Of course, Ken Wilber, my friends in the integral community. You know, Jeff Salzman, Diane Hamilton, Steve McIntosh, uh, and and many others are are important. I'm. I think different people are holding different pieces of of, of this precious jewel. There's a new book by a. A younger guy in his 40s, Brandon uh, Peel, has written a book called Planet on Purpose, in which he's taken this idea of purpose and he thinks he sees how individuals and organizations awakening to their purpose can help us as a whole species, ultimately, to recognize that we have a kind of purpose, especially under these circumstances. And there's a lot of convergence between our, our inspirations and missions. It's an interesting book just out also from a guy named Martin R-U-T-T-E, Rutters, I think it's pronounced. It's, it's called Heaven on Earth, and it's about recognizing this desire to create heaven on earth as uh, the core. So these are positive framings, and yet there are negative framings that are equally compelling. I, Michael Dowd, mm -hmm. the evolutionary evangelist, has become pretty much convinced that we're in the process of the breakdown of human civilization, and yet he's bringing a very 
clear and potent message to help people wake up that I think is, I mean, I, I have hung out mostly with what I would call evolutionaries and then, and to some degree ecologists, but among the innovators, and that's the third group that I think is essential, you know, I think Steven Pinker's new book, Enlightenment Now, is an important contribution. It, I, I, don't, I don't think that his thesis that things are just getting better and better <laughs> includes all of reality. It, 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 what he, the point he's making, the point he's making is really valid. It is that you know rationality and science and modernity have remade the world in a lot of ways that really made it a lot better than it used to be, and that's absolutely the case except that the disasters of modernity are creating existential crises that we're not we're not sure how to make our way through and and yet at the level of what needs to happen in this world right now guys like uh Steven Pinker and Sam Harris and Nick Bostrom and Max Tegmark and Larry Page and you know they're creating the future you know Elon Musk is probably more than anybody in ways that are absolutely central. The fact that they're not talking to the people who are taking the ecological crisis most seriously and who are really looking deeply and reflectively at what that means is an issue. One of my own hopes is that my book will wake up enough people that we're going to be convening conversations that get us out of our little echo chambers where the most important intelligent conversations that we're having are not all intersecting and cross-pollinating and bringing forward a synthesis that's adequate to the complex challenges. So I'm not sure if I summarized anything there, but I did add another point. I hope that's worthwhile. It is, yeah. It's great to see the the constellation. But, you know, I, I really just, I don't know that I was prepared in spite of the title of the book and in spite of everything I've read about it, I don't know that I was prepared for such a, a sweet and gentle conversation with you today, Terry. And I really want to, I want to thank you for modeling, for actually performing. I think that's maybe the most important thing more than anything that has been said today, that you are clearly, truly speaking from the heart, living from the heart listening from the heart and and i want to thank you for that and i want to thank you for again for being on the show and for writing this book yeah well thank you so i hope i hope you'll help people find their way to the book a new republic of the heart an ethos for revolutionaries absolutely (laughs) folks go read it or else Or, you know, maybe if you're a post-literate Generation Z type, you can watch Terry's son's videos about it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be getting an audio book together here. and I hope to have that out within three or four months. Awesome. Excellent. I know a lot of people that are stuck on trains and stuff that will appreciate that. Anything else? Thank you very much for inviting me here. It's good to reconnect with you. Absolutely. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. 
I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned because we have some awesome episodes coming up on future fossils. So stick around and have a most excellent year.